All right, good afternoon. This is Andrew Field coming at you. Um, I thought today we could try to do a podcast about uh, the poetry of Conrad Aiken. Um, I had done a few podcasts in the past, but uh, wasn't doing so well then, so I'm going to try to do a new one today. Um, and I really like the poems of Conrad Aiken. They're not really given a lot of attention nowadays. Um, there's something kind of haunting about them and something that he does with the language that seems easy but isn't. Um, and they're kind of phenomenological in that they sort of get at like different aspects of our experience um, in a kind of very stark, vivid, moving, pleasing kind of way. Um, so let's read some of, some of his poems and then we can maybe talk about them. Um, this is going to be, uh, these are going to be some sections from a longer poem he wrote called Preludes for Memnon. Memnon was, a, I think, a character in Greek myth, um, who, let's see, who was killed by Achilles, um, he, yeah, and then a prelude is like a sort of introductory movement towards or an introduction to, usually it's referred to, it's a word that we can find in music. Um, so here's preludes for Memnon or preludes to attitude is what it says. And then the first section begins, one, winter for a moment takes the mind the snow falls past the arc light. Icicles guard a wall. The wind moans through a crack in the window. A keen sparkle of frost is on the sill. Only for a moment, as spring too might engage it, with a single crocus in the loam or a pair of birds, or summer with hot grass, or autumn with a yellow leaf. Winter is there outside, is here in me, drapes the planets with snow, deepens the ice on the moon, darkens the darkness that was already darkness. The mind too has its snows, its slippery paths, walls bayoneted with ice, leaves ice encased. Here is the indrawn room to which you return when the wind blows from Arcturus. Here is the fire at which you warm your hands and glaze your eyes. The piano on which you touch the cold treble, five notes like breaking icicles and then silence. Let's read a little bit more. The alarm clock ticks. The pulse keeps time with it. Night and the mind are full of sounds. I walk from the fireplace with its imaginary fire to the window with its imaginary view. Darkness and snow ticking the window. Silence and the knocking of chains on a motor car. The tolling of a bronze bell dedicated to Christ.
and then the uprush of angelic wings, the beating of wings demonic from the abyss of the mind, the darkness filled with a feathery whistling, wings numberless as the flakes of angelic snow, snow, the deep void swarming with wings and sound of wings, the winnowing of chaos, the aliveness of depth and depth and depth dedicated to death. Here are the bickerings of the inconsequential, the chatterings of the ridiculous, the iterations of the meaningless. Memory, like a juggler, tosses its colored balls into the light and again receives them into darkness. Here is the absurd, grinning like an idiot, and the omnivorous quotidian, which will have its day. A handful of coins, tickets, items from the news, a soiled handkerchief, a letter to be answered, notice of a telephone call, the petal of a flower in a volume of Shakespeare, the program of a concert. The photograph, too, propped on the mantle, and beneath it a dry rosebud, the laundry bill, matches, and ashtray, Utamaro's pearl fishers, and the rug on which are still the crumbs of yesterday's feast. These are the void, the night, and the angelic wings that make it sound. What is the flower? It is not a sigh of color, suspiration of purple, sibilation of saffron, nor aureate exhalation from the tomb. Yet it is these because you think of these, an emanation of emanations, fragile as light, or glisten, or gleam, or coruscation, creature of brightness, and is brightness brief. What is the frost? It is not the sparkle of death, the flash of time's wing, seeds of eternity. Yet it is these because you think of these. And you, because you think of these, are both frost and flower, the bright, ambiguous syllable on which the meaning is both no and yes. Here is the tragic, the distorting mirror in which your gesture becomes grandiose. Tears form and fall from your magnificent eyes. The brow is noble and the mouth is God's. Here is the God who seeks his mother, chaos. Confusion seeking solution and life seeking death. Here is the rose that woos the icicle, the icicle that woos the rose. Here is the silence of silences, which dreams of becoming a sound, and the sound which will perfect itself in silence. And all these things are only the uprush from the void, the wings angelic and demonic, the sound of the abyss dedicated to death, and this is you. So, that's only the first section um, of Preludes for Memnon or Preludes to Attitude. There's, I think there's more than 60 sections, and in the selected poems that I have here, which won a Pulitzer Prize, um, I'm not sure what year, I think maybe in the early 60s, um, he doesn't include all of the sections of the poem in the selected. He he sort of selects, you know, the ones that he thinks are the strongest. Um, and you can listen to him reading some of the sections on YouTube. If you just type in Conrad 
Aiken, A-I-K-E-N. Uh, you can hear him reading it. It's quite moving. Um, but I mean, we can ask ourselves what is happening in this first section I mean, at a basic level, what's going on. Um, and we know that in the first stanza, he's kind of giving us different angles on experiences with the natural world, starting with winter um, and fall and spring and summer. But the experiences are, they're not exactly specific experiences and they're not exactly general experiences, meaning he's not talking about the, f the time in spring that we first learned how to ride a bike, for example. Um, he's just giving us a sort of very brief, vivid, powerful, um, sense-infused experience, right? He gives us the, the snow falling past the arc light. So a, a brief image of snow falling in front of a kind of a lamplight or an arc light, which could be a light outside. I'm not sure what arc light is exactly. But the idea of snow falling in front of a light and so the snow illuminated from behind by a light. Um, you know, the, the wind moans through a crack in the window. Um, and then he pivots and he gives us, you know, these similarly sort of rich sensory phenomenologies of, of spring, where he gives us a single crocus in the loam or a pair of birds. Uh, and then I love this line, or summer with hot grass, right? Or autumn with a yellow leaf. Um, and so it's it's as if he's giving us, um, you know, I don't want to say like the, the cracker in Proust, you know, Proust in, that, in his, the famous novel eats a Madeleine and then it sort of taps into an entire world of memory and associations that lead to the writing of the novel. I mean, each of these moments aren't like Madeleines, but they are like, um, they're sort of moments in time that feel, that have the quality of something timeless. Um, not timeless in any sort of cheap sense, but timeless in a sort of um, haunting lyrical sense. And... Um, And I think one reason why it's haunting is because, you know, as we know later on, he's going to start talking about dying and death. Um, and when he refers to the void, I mean, the void is 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 the sort of death. And then, you know, raising the question, how do we reconcile these timeless moments of beauty with the fact that, you know, we're on the earth for 70 years and then gone? Um, and he, and that's, I think, a, a, something that he wrestles with a lot in, in his poems. Um, so he gives us this sort of inventory of timeless moments of, of the seasons, all just in one stanza. Um, and then the inventory of the seasons is sort of like wed together with the internal life and the mind, right? Even in the first line of the section, he says, winter for a moment takes the mind, right? So, so there's a deep 
entanglement, a deep participation between our minds and the seasons. So much so that there is even a line where he says, um, winter is there outside, is here in me. As if, you know, you know the seasons are, are happening inside the person just as much as they're happening outside the person. Um, which can kind of explain how these images have such a lyrical haunting sense, right? I mean, they they kind of rub the soul in a way that suggests that the experience of these seasons are so ingrained in us that they are sort of inside of us just as much as they are sort of external weather phenomena that take place outside, right? I mean, there's a reason why another great American poet, Wallace Stevens, wrote about the weather, right? Um, because the weather isn't just the weather, right? It's also a sort of beautiful, ravishing, mysterious phenomena um, that has, you know, zillions of poetic implications. So, so we have, so there's that first stanza, and then there's a kind of a, a suddenness to the beginning of the second one where he says, the alarm clock ticks. The pulse keeps time with it. So we're sort of woken up from our reverie about the seasons. Um, and and then we have the speakers walking, right, from the fireplace with the imaginary fire to the window with its imaginary view. Um, why does he say imaginary fire? I'm not sure. He, he could be talking about... Um, the fact that it's in a poem and so that we're imagining it? I don't know. I walk from the fireplace with its imaginary fire to the window with its imaginary view. Yeah, so the sense of a speaker in a sort of poetic world where the the fire is imaginary and the, the view is imaginary, possibly. Um, then we have these different sounds and, si and sights that are completely real feeling, even if also sort of lyrical and poetic feeling, like the knocking of chains on a motor car, the tolling of a bronze bell, um, and then, but then suddenly, and then the uprush of angelic wings, right? The beating of wings demonic from the abyss of the mind. So suddenly we're moving into something more speculative and metaphysical and cosmological. And the darkness, I think, could be interpreted as like the two sides of the brackets of death that we stand before, right? The, the sense that for a time we weren't in the world and there was death and we were in the world and then we leave the world and then there's death, right? That could be interpreted as the darkness. But then what is the feathery whistling and the wings? That could be the moment, the momentary nature of our lives, right? The fact that we're here for however long we're here for and that's, you know, we could interpret that as the angelic wings. The deep void swarming with wings and sound of wings. The winnowing of chaos, right? Chaos of, of darkness. The winnowing of it, the sort of sieving of it, the, 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 the making sense of it. Winnowing has to do with um, agriculture, doesn't it? With wheat, the winnowing of chaos. The aliveness of depth and depth and depth dedicated to death. But then we, if, if, if the angelic wings are the momentary time in which we're alive on earth, then what is the momentary time? And that's where he moves to next. He says, well, here are the bickerings of the inconsequential, right? The chatterings of the ridiculous, the iterations of the meaningless. 
Here's the absurd, the grinning like an idiot, the om omnivorous quotidian. And then he gives us all these great examples of just like the sort of ceaseless trivia of life, right? In, in objects, right? Coins, tickets, items from the news, a soiled handkerchief, a letter to be answered, um, the petal of a flower in a book, a photograph, uh, an ashtray, matches, a laundry bill, right? So then he, and then he equates those with the void, right? With death, uh, with night. And then, yeah. And then when he ends this section, he says, well, what is the flower, right? Because the flower was mentioned um, twice. First in, in the inventory of the seasons, and then second in a sort of inventory of the trivia. Um, what is the flower? And he gives us... Um, ideas about what the flower is and when he gives us these ideas he says well it's not these things but at the same time it is because you think of these so he says it is not a sigh of color suspiration of purple sibilation of saffron nor orient exhalation from the tomb yet i love that word yet there yet it is these because you think of these right an emanation of emanations fragile as light or glisten or gleam or coruscation so he's kind of giving credence to thought as a power for making sense of objects or images or ideas um, and the importance of thought in a poem, right? Um, because it's not, you know, to say, what is a flower? A sigh of color. Right? I mean, that's, that's a really marvelous line. It is not a sigh of color. But it is, especially in the poem, because you think of these things. And so it's sort of like an honoring or a validating or a cherishing of the need for and role that imaginative thinking plays in life and in poetry. Um, and then it's a sigh of color, right? What a great line. And then what is the frost? It is not the sparkle of death, the flash of time's wing, seeds of eternity. And then again, the yet. Yet it is these because you think of these. Um, so we'll probably end pretty soon, but then there's that great, this one, this interesting last stanza of the first section where he says, here is a tragic, the distorting mirror in which your gesture becomes grandiose. Tears form and fall from your magnificent eyes. The brow is noble and the mouth is God's. Here's the God who seeks his mother chaos. Um, confusion, confusion seeking solution and life seeking death. Here's the rose that woos the icicle, the icicle that woos the rose. Here is the silence of silences, which dreams of becoming a sound, and the sound which will perfect it sometimes. That is such an Aiken phrase. It's so reverberative. It, it just reverberates, right? Here is the silence of silences, which dreams of becoming a sound, and the sound which will perfect itself in silence. And all these things are only the uprush from the void. Right? It's almost philosophical. And all these things are only the sort of momentary sparklings, right? The momentary 
sounds of the angelic wings. The, angel the wings angelic and demonic, the sound of the abyss dedicated to death. And this is you, right? This, this sort of t eternal mystery, right? This is, this is, this is you. This, this, this momentary uprush from the abyss. Um, yeah. So um, I wonder if there's one more section that I think we could read which is really great, and then we'll end. Um, I can find it. Let's see. Well, I don't know exactly where that one section is, but let's read one more and then we'll end. So here's section 20, 29, I think I'm not good with these Roman numerals. So here's Aiken a little bit more. What shall we do? What shall we think? What shall we say? Why, as the crocus does on a March morning, with just such shape and brightness, such fragility, such white and gold, and out of just such earth? Or as the cloud does on the northeast wind, fluent and formless, or as a tree that withers, what are we made of, strumpet, but of these? Nothing. We are the sum of all these accidents, compounded all our days of idiot trifles, the this, the that, the other, and the next. What X or Y said or old uncle thought, whether it rained or not, and at what hour, whether the pudding had two eggs or three, and those we loved were ladies, were they ladies? Did they read the proper books and simper with proper persons at the proper teas? O oh Christ and God and all deciduous things, let us avoid out this nonsense and be healed. There is no doubt that we shall do as always just what the crocus does. There is no doubt. Your Helen with Troy is all that she has seen. All filth, all beauty, all honor and deceit. The spider's web will hang in her bright mind. The dead fly die there doubly, and the rat finds sewers to his liking. She will walk in such a world as this alone could give, this of the moment, this mad world of mirrors and of corrosive memory. She will know the lecheries of the cockroach and the worm, the chemistry of the sunset, the foul seeds laid by the intellect and the simple heart, and knowing all these things, she will be she. She will be also the sunrise on the grass blade, but pay no heed to that. She will be also the infinite tenderness of the voice of mourning. But pay no heed to that. She will be also the grain of elmwood and the ply of water, whirlings in sand and smoke, wind in the ferns, the fixed bright eyes of dolls, and this is all. Um, so appropriately for a poem about a Greek hero, we have a mention of Helen of Troy, 
Um, but before we even hear of Helen of Troy, um, Aiken asks, what shall we do? What shall we think? What shall we say? Why, just as the crocus does on a March morning. So again, in the same way in which in the first section, he was sort of wedding um, natural images with this sort of subjective inner life. Here, he's asking us to, or telling us that, you know, what, what we say, what we do, what shall we do, which is kind of like should, is, is to be natural, you know, according to this poem. Why is the crocus does on a March morning? Now, is he being ironic? Um, I don't know. Why is the crocus on a March morning with just such shape and brightness? It's hard to know if he's being affirming or, um, I think he's, I don't think he's being ironic, but, um, it is kind of hard to be as natural as a March crocus. Uh, <laughs> um, So he asks that question, and then we, 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 we find out that we're, you know, even though we, we should, we, we shall, we shall be, right? We should aspire to be of the, of the natural qualities of a March crocus. Um, but, but, we're, but we're not really, right? We're the sum of all these accidents, right? These idiot trifles, this and that, and what he thought, what she thought, whether it rained or not. Kind of like that, the litany of, you know, tickets and bills that we heard in, in the last section um, and then even help when then you know, even Helen of Troy when she steps into the picture right even when we have um, you know the famous female figure in Greek myth who all the men fall in love with and you know who can cause a war right um, I mean obviously here she's totally de-idealized in a sense right um, you know, she's not going to be, you know, the kind of saving remnant. She's not going to be, whoever she is, you know, it could be a partner, you know, a spouse. Um, you know, is she going to be the person to stop the, to, to begin the wars? No, she, she's someone who knows the lecheries of the cockroach and the worm, right? The chemistry of the sunset. Though I like Aiken for a lot of reasons. One is that he's... He's comfortable with, um, I want to say ambidextrousness, that's not the word, ambivalence, right? Like sort of two sides of the same coin. So she knows the lecheries of the cockroach of the worm, but also the chemistry of the sunset, um, which has a more of a positive valence. Um, so, you know, all these things Helen of Troy will know, but also she will be the sunrise on the grass blade, right? But pay no heed to that, right? So there is the, he doesn't throw out love entirely in, in, in the poem. And this, is, this isn't the last section. Um, you know, I don't know, some people might find it sentimental, but I actually like these lines, right? The infinite tenderness of the voice of mourning. That's another just beautifully lyrical line. Um, but he's saying, but pay no attention to that, right? Because, or what's the word he says? He says, but pay no heed to that, meaning like, don't get lost in... Um, in romantic romanticization is that a word of love or idealizations of love right um, but then there's that yet right but she will be the sunrise on the grass blade um, 
So I could talk for a long time about Aiken. I think he's just wonderful, and um, maybe we could do a second episode about him at a later time. But um, I really encourage people to read him. He's he's accessible, but in the best sense. Like you can read him, and it, it like feels like the way that poetry should feel like, at least to my mind, a certain kind of poetry, right? Poetry that takes up like the really grand themes about. I don't know time and immortality i mean like if you read a poem by like you know a wall stevens for example or a john ashbury if you don't read a lot of poetry it can be harder to access uh arguably i don't know i don't teach poetry so it'd be interesting to to hear what other people think but um but when you pick up aiken i think because he doesn't i think because maybe his vocabulary is accessible like he's not using the zillions of new words um you can really act, you can really get, have a powerful poetic experience of reading so thanks for listening and take care